Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. And a warm welcome to Afternoons with me. I'm Bill Arnold. I'm having a blast today, and I'm going to continue to have fun because Heather Holloman's going to be joining me in just a minute. She's written a new book called Scent, Living a Life That Invites Others to Jesus. Then I'm going to have the brainiac of all time on, uh, Dr. Hugh Ross. You can go to reasons.org to learn more about him. This man is so unbelievably smart, I can't even see straight. But he's going to be fun. But let's get started with Heather. She's a... Uh, Director of Crew at Penn State has written a number of books: Chosen for Christ, Guarded by Christ, Seated with Christ, and this is her latest book called Sent: Living a Life That Invites Others to Jesus. Heather, welcome back. Hi, Bill. It's so good to be on your show again. Thank you so much. Now, did you uh, write this with uh, Ashley? I did. I wrote this with my husband. We survived. It wasn't as bad as I thought it would be. Uh-huh. Co-writing with your spouse. Yeah. He was great. He took, he, you know, I, I set up assignments for him at the coffee shop. He finished all of his deadlines. It was perfect. Good for it was him. perfect. Good for him. So let's start with just finding out what it means to live a, a scent life. What does that mean? Well, living a scent life means that you embrace your biblical identity that Jesus is sending you. It's part of who you are. And for so long, I thought evangelism, you know, telling people about Jesus, I thought it was like guilt or duty or so much about me needing more training. And then this year I thought, no, Jesus sends us. It's the number one way Jesus describes the Father in the book of John. So by the time you get to John 20, where Jesus says, as the Father has sent me, so I send you. So Mm. it's about knowing you're sent wherever you are. Interesting. So we don't have to sit and tell God that we have to be more ready before you send me. We just have to be obedient. Yes. And it's just part of who you are. And and it's as natural as, you know, eating breakfast or brushing your teeth. It's just a core part of your identity in Christ. And the one thing I realized, because I love organizing scripture to help me figure out how to live my life, as I looked through the Bible, I was like, okay, God is always at work to draw people to himself. He's using people to lead others to Jesus, and he's continually inviting all believers into this work. And it just got me so excited. You think of the Great Commission, but there's also that beautiful part where you hear Jesus say, follow me, and I will send you out to fish for people. I just get so excited about that. I do, too. So if you're being sent out by Jesus, you don't have to fear so much about rejection or or worry that people are going to be offended. You just you just follow what God has called you to do. Yes, and it's about living such a life of adventure and joy with Jesus because you know this is what he's doing. So he sends you out, and the position of your heart is, Lord, send me to be an agent of blessing and proclamation, just that you see the people in your life who don't know Jesus as placed there by God, and you're supernaturally in their life. And so every interaction is this opportunity to experience how God could use you. And I, I loved exploring just the metaphors in the New Testament for how to see yourself. You know, I'm big into professional development. I want to know my job description. And I love how Jesus, as you read the New Testament, you really, in any situation, could see yourself as a farmer, 
a fisherman, an ambassador, or a royal priest. Mm-hmm. So I spend a lot of time thinking about my job description as I'm sent into the lives of people. So Heather, I know listeners are are hearing this, thinking, convince them that, and to so they can believe that God has sent them. Well, first of all, we know that God's at work. So he is drawing people to himself. That's what people need to first realize. That's the core principle of my life, that we know that Jesus came to seek and save the lost. That's Luke 19. We know that that's what Jesus is still doing, which, of course, raises the question, you know, we could immediately be sanctified and go into heaven into eternity. Why does God still leave us here? It's clear he's building a kingdom. We know God's using people. He could have used any other method. But we know God's using people. So think about Acts 1-8. I remember exactly where I was in the Student Union of University of Michigan when I read Acts 1-8, and it says you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses. So, you know, I'm circling these things in the Bible and that we know that if you're a believer, we know in 2 Corinthians, Corinthians that God is using you to spread the knowledge of him wherever you go. And then in 2 Corinthians 5, you get that beautiful and very mysterious passage that God is using you as his ambassador, and he's making an appeal through you to other people. And, you know, there's all sorts of ways to think about the fruit you're going to bear. Ephesians 2, John 15, you know, he's appointed you for good fruit. So once you establish that, you cannot deny Matthew 28, the Great Commission. Go, go and make disciples. Now, theologically speaking, I really had to to question, okay, God, do you speak out the exact places where I live? Yes, Acts 17. Are you holding my life in your hands, you know, all of my ways? Is it possible that God has orchestrated you in your neighborhood, your workplace, you know, even if you go to the doctor or your dishwasher breaks down, to live a sent identity that the sovereign God of the universe is positioning people on a rescue mission? I mean, Bill, this has become so deep in my heart that if I break a foot and I'm at the doctor— my first question is, okay, Lord, who here doesn't know you? The doctor <laughs> might not know you. Or if my dishwasher breaks, it's not about the dishwasher. It's about the repairman. Does yeah. he know you? So life has become really exciting around here. And that makes me jump right to chapter 8, Heather, where you talk about the easiest questions to ask. And this is a great lesson you can give yes. not only me, but all of our all of the listeners right now. And there's one particular yes. word which I can't wait for you to say. You mean about curiosity, yep, being curious that's it. about people? That's it. Yep. <laughs> well, curiosity, if you're listening, it's actually one of the most important key professional skills to develop. Being curious is also good for well-being. I quote a lot of research. You know, I love, I love, you know, I'm a scholar. I love looking at what all the research says. So developing curiosity as you, as you meet people, my first question to ask, even before you get into a spiritual conversation, is you can just say to people that you meet, I'm really excited to get to know you, and here's my favorite question, Bill. Look at them and say, what question do you like people to ask you about yourself? Wow. Do you not love that? It's so easy. You can start great friendships, and it's great for your dating relationships, for young people who want to know what to talk about when they go out. Just ask the person, what question do you like people to ask you? But over the years, I have four questions. They're called the four best questions that always lead to a great spiritual conversation. So the first one is this. So I'm walking a bunch of kids to school with their parents. And I I was walking, and I'm with a woman who converted to Hinduism. And all I said was this. I turned to her and I said, well, you know, I'm a Christian. What does your tradition say about Jesus? 
And she said that single question sent her back to her house. What does my tradition say about Jesus? Who is he? That single question opened up a gospel presentation. She not only prayed to receive Christ, but she led her husband and two children to the Lord. And that's not a hard question. Just say, what does your tradition say about Jesus? Now, of course, she said, well, tell me more you know, how do, what is, what do Christians believe about Jesus? And that led us to study the book of John together. And the book, we give you a lot of tips and skills that maybe you don't have, you know, how do I share the gospel with someone? But the second question is if someone's talking to you and maybe they're in distress or they're, you know, with the COVID-19 world, you're going to deal with a lot of loneliness, anxiety, uncertainty. If you turn to someone and say, the things you're talking about sound like spiritual problems to me. Do you consider yourself on a spiritual journey? And where are you on that journey? People will burst into tears. Mm. They might say, I can't believe you asked me that. I asked a student that who was crying one day. I said, it seems like you're, you're having a spiritual moment here. And she said to me, you know, I grew up, my mom and dad gave me a Bible and talked to me about Jesus. And when I got to college, I abandoned my faith and I need to come back just by asking her about that journey question. Now, the third question is so easy. Anyone can ask it, and it's one of my favorites. I just tell people, look, I'm in a fresh season of prayer. Do you have any prayer requests I might commit to pray for? Nobody has said no. Mm-hmm. People now want to be in my prayer journal. I have people that say, they call me Dr. H at Penn State, so they'll be like, Dr. H, you know I'm an atheist, but put me in that prayer journal. <laughs> and they'll come and they'll ask about my prayer life, and it opens up conversation. And then the last question, um, which is harder, so if you're listening and you're like, oh, I don't know if I could do this, my best question for evangelism that opens up so many doors is I'll walk into spaces where there are not believers, and just in the course of conversation, I will say, I just learned something really great in the Bible that's changing how I deal with, and then whatever it is God has been teaching you. I've had people who know nothing about the Bible. Like I was, I literally walked into my office at Penn State. You know, I have an atheist office mate and then someone from a completely different, you know, different religious tradition who I walked in and I said, I'm really struggling with a lot of fear like a spirit of dread with public speaking. And I was reading in the Bible, you know, just talking about what God's teaching me. I said, I was reading in the Bible about how God hasn't given me a spirit of fear. Mm -hmm. Well, the atheist turned to me and she just said, can you say that again? And I said, yeah, I, I, the Bible talks about not having a spirit of fear. And she said, what you just said, that spirit of fear, I have that. I know I have that. How do I get rid of that? opened up the whole door. So we also, we encourage people to know, you know, how is God working? What are your top three stories of transformation and attach it to a Bible verse? Cause God's word is so powerful. It, it, it bears fruit. And so I know, are you inspired, Bill? Do you feel like you have all the tools you need? Well, I'm totally inspired and it's, it's so simple. Everything you're sharing, Heather is so simple. It is just, yes. you're weaving it into everyday conversation. You're yes. speaking truth and you're being curious yes. and being curious is never, ever a bad thing. No, it's wonderful. Actually, it's good for you. People who are curious are less trustful, less angry, and less aggressive, according to the research on curiosity coming out of George Mason. And curiosity saves marriages, apparently, I'm reading. Just to position yourself, and if, and if you're wondering, you know, how do I really think about that biblically, you know, a lot of Philippians 2 
if you think about taking the lowest place and be putting the interests of other people above yourself, how do you know what they are? How do you put the interests of someone above yourself if you're not even interested in their life at all? Mm -hmm. You know, it's a way of honoring people above yourself. So living a curious life will change everything. You just start asking people and people are so lonely right now and so scared and, you know, distant from everyone that I've been, you know, doing kind of like a texting strategy where I'll text my professor friends and I'll say, I'm just really curious. How, how has it been for you? What, what's going on? And that usually that leads to the prayer requests and usually that leads to them needing to talk and yeah. just being curious. Yes. Okay, Heather, I got a bunch more questions for you, but I do need to take a little break. Dr. Heather Holloman is my guest. Her book is called Scent, Living a Life That Invites Others to Jesus. She co-wrote it with her hubby, Ashley. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the show. Dr. Heather Holloman is my guest. Heather, I haven't spoken to you in a while. I forgot how good you are. This is really good, good <laughs> stuff. Really. I'm not I'm not making any of this up. Well, I didn't forget how good you are. You're so great and have so much fun energy on the radio. It's always fun to listen to you. So I saw that I had you today, and I was like, yes, Bill Arnold, I got this. <laughs> it was exciting. <laughs> All right. Talk about the easiest story to tell. All right. The easiest story to tell is, and it's the most important tool you have. It's the most important tool you can leverage in spiritual conversations. And that is your story of God at work in your life. And we encourage you to think of your top three stories of transformation because it moves like the the vague spiritual conversations you might have into these really practical, powerful moments with neighbors and coworkers when you say, look, this was who I was. And then I met Jesus. It's the way you first tell your story of meeting Jesus. And then what Bible verse did God use? What was it? How did, what came alive for you? And then I talk about telling stories of rescue where God rescued you. There's also stories of provision and stories of maturity. And I give examples of how you can tell them in two to three minutes in great conversation. So you set up your before scene, what your struggle was, how God met you. And the word, because I think God's word, you know, we learn in Romans 10, faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of God. Mm -hmm. The stories themselves are not what's powerful. It's that you're leading them to God's word and the Holy Spirit, we pray, makes it come alive to people. So it's great to use in groups. We've done it with Sunday school classes. We've done it with just small groups of people. Write down your stories of transformation. Go use them. Go use them in conversation. And it just becomes really easy um, I tell pretty regularly my story of God healing me from jealousy, and that's what the book Seated with Christ from Ephesians 2. But I know how to tell that story in two to three minutes, and so we really just challenge people. You know, it's really easy to do this. And remember, my husband, he co-wrote the book with me because he's an introvert who claims he does not have any gift of evangelism, and yet, by faith, he steps out of the house, and in the power of the Holy Spirit, he just led our 85-year-old neighbor to Christ. Mm. So using stories, engaging him in good conversations, taking that step of faith to invite him out to coffee and begin asking curious questions. Oh, wow. That, it's, it's so strong to be reminded that it's got at work in your life and you can tell your stories and be curious and you can get someone's attention quickly, can't you? Yes. And then again, it just makes things really exciting. Your life will start to explode with that kind of worship and intimacy. A lot of Christians feel like bored or they have a 
lack of purpose or else they're living in real despair because of the times. They don't really know what they're supposed to be doing. You know, what what can they do? But this scent identity really gives them a way to think, okay, Jesus, I'm going to do this with you every day. This is who I am. This is who you made me to be. Let's go do this together. And you're going to start to have some really fun adventures. And that's what we have found. Okay. Heather, if we're going to invite people to a response, I I guess that's when it gets really scary for a lot of people. Uh, Would you like to have a begin a relationship with Jesus? Would you like to invite Christ into your life? But you actually in your book just put out some really great ways of suggesting it and doing and going about it. And this is what I love about the way you write. Well, it is difficult. And I'll be honest, I can tell stories and ask curious questions all day. But at some point, you have to invite a response. It's that moment when Jesus turns and says, okay, who do you say I am? Right, exactly. It will be a step of faith. And it's not scary in the sense that like, oh, I'm going to be rejected. This is terrible. It's more you pivoting the conversation to say, what do you think about this? Who do you think Jesus is? What do you feel like this is a decision you want to make to invite the Lord into your life to receive the forgiveness of sin. Now, there's all sorts of spiritual tools you can use. We talk about having an app on your phone. We love God tools, and we kind of give all those tools to you. Obviously, I still love the four spiritual laws or knowing mm-hmm. God personally is the updated version. I love those. They're fantastic gospel presentations, and that's where the little the training part comes in, where you do at some point need to understand this is what it means to receive the free gift of salvation. But before that, just remember the people in the New Testament who, you know, they they had great, almost like a great ministry, even though their skills weren't there. Think of the blind man who was like, I have no idea. I just know that <laughs> I've, I've been healed. Or I love the woman at the well, because if you remember in John 4, her big sort of evangelistic moment was her just going to her town and saying, look, you guys need to come and meet a man who told me everything I ever did. She actually wasn't sure. You could tell she doesn't really have good theology. She's got a lot of questions. She probably didn't know what to say, but, you know, Jesus goes and stays in the town and the people are like, you know, first we believed because you said something, but now we know for ourselves. So evangelism is sort of like, look, I'm not sure if I can answer all your questions, but come and meet a man, you know, come and meet Jesus. It's sort of like that woman at the well. I know I can't answer all your questions, but you've got to meet this. You've got to meet this Savior. And you can, you know, begin reading the book of John together, which we did with what we thought were going to be hostile neighbors. And Ash just said, you know, we love talking about spiritual things. Would you guys be interested in getting together for pancakes on Saturday and reading the book of John with us? And our most hostile neighbor said, Ashley, I have been waiting for an invitation like this. I have been waiting. And so we gathered, we read the book of John. It's just, it's not not hard and it's fun. And you may have people say, I'm not ready to talk about this or, and you can just be honest with people. So many times I say, like I share in in the book, the first time someone asked me about Jesus, I said, look, I don't know what I'm doing. But I'm going to talk to you. <laughs> you know, oh, I just hysterical. said, I have no idea. But yeah. let's go through this together. I want to say what neighbor can say no to Heather and Ash's pancakes. Ash makes amazing pancakes. Yeah, there I you go. There you go. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, Heather, we have a little bit of time left, and I would love for you to retell your story of the jealousy issue. 
Yes. Okay. It was a summer day in late July. I was overcome with jealousy and comparison, and I thought I was living the wrong life. I turned to Ephesians 2 and read the weirdest passage of Scripture that changed everything about me. It just says this, God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. Now, before that passage, it says that I'm dead in my transgressions and sins, but God, I'm made alive in Christ. And I'm reading this passage, and I was like, well, I know I'm alive in Christ, but how come I don't feel this weird sense of being seated with him? And that day, I said, okay, I'm seated at the greatest table with the greatest king. Why am I still fighting to belong at this list of other tables that I'm trying to get an invitation for? The thin table, the wealthy table, the famous table, all these tables. That day, the Holy Spirit just pierced my heart and said, the table you've been waiting for is already here. Now start living like a seated person. And I realized that seated people live in the freedom of knowing, and I call them my three A's. They know they can just adore Jesus and radiate the beauty of the King. They have access to all the riches of God's kingdom, and they abide to bear the fruit God's ordained for their life. They adore access and abide, and they don't ever have to compare their lives again. They're already at the table they've been longing for all their life. Mm -hmm. And how has that been sustained in your life since that day? Since that, that's actually a great question, and it's the number one question I get when I tell an unbeliever that story. That's actually their first question. They say, so you felt seated with Jesus. How do you keep that feeling up? Mm -hmm. And I said, honestly, I have to remind myself every new morning. I tell the Lord every morning. I read five psalms a day, and I love connecting with Jesus through Ephesians, and I just say, Lord, I'm seated with you. Thank you. You're here with me. I'm in that secure place. And I just remind myself of the end of Ephesians 2 that said, we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. So I think I've got good works today. I don't need to compare them to anyone else who has her good works. Whatever God has planned for me, it's part of my sent identity. So now I'm seated and sent. But I do, Bill, I do remind myself almost every morning because Satan wants to steal that truth. Mm -hmm. Isn't it amazing to you that you've probably gone all your life and not really heard a lot of sermons on seated? I hadn't heard one. Nobody had used that word to to tell me who I was, that I was seated. I think it's a deep truth. It sets you free. Yeah. Well, I know in your book, Heather, and I want all my listeners to hear this, that if Christians sharing their faith is not oftentimes due to not being trained, but it's, it's, due to a lack of knowing who you are in Christ and that Jesus has sent you. So you need to know that you've been sent. So yes. start asking questions, be curious, and you're going to have uh, a lot of new results maybe you've never had before. Yes, and there's some fun things to do while you read the book. We have you make a list of five people in your life that don't know Jesus, and we talk about the seven ways to pray Mm -hmm. and different faith steps you can begin. So it's going to be easy and fun and something that you'll love to do with a small group or your church. Okay, let's do this again, Heather. It's always uh, good to talk to you, and thank you so much. Yes, have a good evening. Yep. Dr. Heather Holloman has been my guest. Her book is called Sent, Living a Life That Invites Others to Jesus. You can go to Heather Holloman, H-O-L-L-E-R-M-A-N, Heather Holloman, She blogs daily, and you can see all of her books and learn more about her right there. We'll take a little break. When we come back, Dr. Hugh Ross is my guest. You're going to love this. Be right back.
I would guess many of us think of climate change as a recent issue, but as you would guess, scientists have been talking about this for a long, long time, but it's, somehow it's become politically very uh, charged, emotionally very charged, and it's difficult to discern what is true and what to understand uh, as solid facts and where to go from there. My guest, Dr. Hugh Ross, is a founder and president of Reasons to Believe. He's author of many books, including Improbable Planet and Why the Universe is the Way It Is. He is very very possibly one of the five smartest people on the planet, and he's with us now. Uh, Hugh, how are you? Doing well, thank you. <laughs> thank you. Now, you're, you're going to make this weathering climate change a fresh approach, something that we can all understand a little bit easier. That's our, that's the goal. Yeah, and it's a it's a it's a lofty goal because it is very emotionally charged, and it's very difficult to know what is true and how do we move forward on the subject. You're right. <laughs> um, so, <laughs> what is true? Well, I waited to bring the book out until we had uh, reliable, indisputable temperature data for the past ten thousand years. Mm-hmm. That got recently published using 74 different temperature proxies from all over the world. And I now notice that uh, you know, the skeptics of global warming, once they're exposed to that data, uh, they recognize that the data is reliable. So at least that part of the debate has been taken off the table. Uh, and it actually reveals, too, that the climate stability we've been enjoying for the past 9,500 years is far more stable than what we thought two years ago, at least three times more stable. The global mean temperature has not changed by more than plus or minus 0.65 degrees. So the literature that used to say two degrees, we now know it's only 0.65 uh, degrees. So the debate has shifted to whether or not humans are responsible uh, for the global warming. And I need to put that in context uh, because for 9,000 years, the global mean temperature, albeit very stable, was very, very slowly declining. And so the global mean temperature dropped by one degree centigrade from 8,700 years ago until 1950. But the data also shows us that from 1950 to 2020 has gone up by one degree uh, centigrade. So we're exactly where we were 8,700 years ago. <laughs> And the concern is, if we keep the pace that we've been running on since 1950, uh, we're going to go up another couple of degrees centigrade. And, you know, we're in an ice age cycle. And if you look at past uh, cycles in the ice age, every time the global mean temperature has gotten two degrees centigrade, warmer than where we are right now, uh, the climate has rapidly dropped into a deep ice age. And that's something most late people aren't aware of. The global warming always brings on dramatic global cooling. And the cooling is going to last for late 90,000 years. It's not going to be a brief moment. And so this is something I'm bringing in in the book, uh, but also identifying what exactly is the cause of the cooling and what is the cause of the warming, because I think that's important to actually identify the different causes. It's a huge mistake to dump it all in carbon dioxide. That is a factor, but there are many other important factors as well. But really the heart of the book is how we can sustain climate stability while we boost the world economy. 
Because if you're familiar with other books on uh, uh, climate change, they're all claiming the only way we can stabilize the climate is to dramatically reduce uh, the economic uh, indexes of all the world's nations. And I argue that that's not going to sell. Uh, trying to convince people to live on one half or one third of their income, present income, uh, you're not going to sell that. Humans are fundamentally selfish. And so trying to enforce it's not going to work. We need to find a way to economically motivate people to stabilize the climate. And that to me is what was really fun about writing the book. There's many things we can do that will stabilize the climate and put more money in everybody's pockets, actually benefit the ecosystems of the world, and especially benefit the poor. What politician in his right mind is going to vote against that? Exactly. So, uh, Dr. Ross, when we think of uh, the sentiment most Americans have, they believe, I think the overwhelming majority believe that science affirms global warming. It used to be yeah. called global warming. Now we've changed it to, to uh, what, just climate change, which makes it right. a little bit more ambiguous. Um, but as you are uh, looking at the, the numbers, where do you place yourself in terms of uh, this, this uh, statistic of science affirming global warming? Well, uh, I agree that with, based on the very latest temperature data that we have, uh, that you cannot deny that global warming is occurring. It's mm -hmm. very occurring. And whenever I've shown this data to the global warming deniers, they admit, yeah, uh, it really is warming up. But that's where the debate shifts in saying, well, it's a mistake to blame it on humans. It's natural causes that are warming the planet, not human activity. And therefore, we shouldn't worry about shutting down all of our factories, stopping people from driving their cars, and tell people they can't turn their air conditioner on. Uh, what is actually in uh, the scientific data is that the natural cycles are cooling the planet and cooling, cooling it quite aggressively. Human activity is warming the planet. And for a 9,500 year period, uh, the natural cooling has been perfectly counterbalanced by the human warming, almost perfectly hmm. balanced by the human activity that was warming the planet. As I mentioned, it's gone down uh, very slightly. The cooling has very slightly superseded the warming from human activity. But as we're all aware, there's been a technological explosion since the end of World War II. And it's that technological explosion that's causing human activity to accelerate the warming. And so what we've seen over the last 70 years is the impact of accelerated human civilization technology and population. And I'm arguing that's not a bad thing, it's a good thing. Mm -hmm. And how we can use that technology to actually stabilize the climate while we continue to boost technology and economic well-being of all the peoples of the world. All right, Dr. Ross, let's, uh, let's look at something as early as last night's newscast and all the fires that are going on in the West. Uh, it's being said that these fires in the West are caused by climate change. What are your thoughts? Well, climate change is a factor. I live in the West. I mean, there's fires burning all around me. And, uh, you know, I've been dealing with asthma because of all the smoke in the air. Uh, but uh, the biggest factor is the fact that we had these forests with a natural burn rate 
about, about once every eight years. But because we've been protecting these uh, forests and brushlands uh, from fire, some of them haven't burnt for 20, 25, 30 years. And this is where we're really getting the bad fires. So yeah, global warming is a factor, but it's a minor factor. A much bigger factor is the fact that we've not allowed the natural burn cycle to take its course, and we're paying the consequences for that now. Because it's just, you know, where you got the really bad fires, there's a huge amount of fuel uh, because of the dry, uh, warm conditions, but also because they haven't burnt off in a long, long time. And, uh, you know, people need to realize it's important that we allow uh, forest fires to occur because that puts charcoal into the soil. Mm. And charcoal is crucial to condition the soil, to bring nutrients in the soil. And so the ecosystem needs uh, regular natural fires to occur. And I think I would argue in the book, too, is that if we actually change the way we harvest timber uh, in our forests, uh, we can mitigate the damage uh, from these forest fires. The forests would be a whole lot healthier. You'd have a much uh, thri better thriving ecosystem. The wildlife would return there. I don't know if you ever visit any of our national parks out in the West. In some of the cases, a third of the trees are dead uh, from bark beetles. Oh, wow. And uh, we had simply allowed responsible lumbering to come in there and selectively harvest the trees we'd have a much healthier forest. They wouldn't be having these devastating forest fires. And uh, we'd have a lot more wildlife there. And the tourists would love it. Because as a tourist, I hate visiting a national park where all the trees are dead. I mm -hmm. want to see a forest, and I want to see a lot of wildlife running around in that forest. Uh, if it's filled with dead and decaying timber, uh, that actually inhibits the ecosystem. Yeah. Dr. Hugh Ross is my guest. His book is uh, Weathering Climate Change, A Fresh Approach. And Hugh, you said in your book that you, you discovered something interesting about Earth's climate history that uh, sheds light on our current condition and, and maybe our future as well. Would you share that? Yes. Uh, I think a lot of lay people have the idea that this climate stability we've been enjoying is the norm for the Earth. It's not. Mm. It's the exception. It's never happened before. The norm is climate instability. And moreover, we're in an ice age cycle. And I explain in the book why that's a good thing. There's no way you can feed billions of human beings if you're not living in an ice age cycle. We need melting ice left over from the last ice age to water the great agricultural plains. We also need the volcanic eruptions that occur as thousands of feet of ice are quickly melting to fertilize the great agricultural plains. And if you read the book, there's a dozen more benefits we get from living in an ice age cycle. But when you're in an ice age cycle, and we've only been in a cycle in the last whole oh, uh, 0.0057 part of Earth's history. So this is a unique time in which we live. Uh, but an ice age cycle is characterized by the global mean temperature jumping up and down uh, by 12 degrees centigrade, that's 20 degrees Fahrenheit, on time scales of two or three centuries, and explains why humans living during the last ice age were not able to launch civilization. The climate was radically unstable, so unstable, they couldn't predict uh, whatever crops they would plant would produce, 
or what animals they had under their care would be able to produce. Uh, at that time, uh, more than 99% of the human race was engaged in trying to provide enough food. I mean, the reason we have this technological advance today, we only need 1% of the American population focused on providing food. The other 99% of us get to write computer programs uh, or do <laughs> art or music uh, or engineering or science. So, uh, It's interesting, Hugh, if I were to ask a person on the street if if they thought we were in an ice age cycle, I don't think I'd get anyone to say yes to that. You probably wouldn't. And that's one reason I put in the book kind of, if you look at the past history of the earth, for 90% of the history of life on planet earth, no ice at all. Today, 10% of the continents are covered with ice. When you're in an ice age, it goes up to 23%. Mm -hmm. During the last ice age, 55% of North America was covered with thousands of feet of ice. And actually explains why tourists like to come here, because the rapid retreat of that ice created incredibly beautiful scenery. Uh, Cutout canyons, uh, Yosemite Valley is a recent phenomenon. The retreat of the last ice age carved that out. Dr. Hugh Ross is my guest. We'll take a little break. We'll be right back with lots more. His book is called Weathering Climate Change, A Fresh Approach. Hugh Ross, be right back. back with Dr. Hugh Ross. His book is Weathering Climate Change, A Fresh Approach. And one of my smart listeners, Paul, said, uh, what about the fires in Siberia? Any comment on that, Hugh? Well, it's the same thing. I mean, what we're experiencing here in North America uh, is an extreme example of what's happening in Australia, Siberia, other parts of the world, uh, wherever you have uh, dry conditions. And notice, too, that the global warming is impacting the north uh, more than anywhere else. For example, Canada is warming up about five times more rapidly uh, than the world is an average. Now, parts of the world are getting colder. Eastern Europe is getting colder, for example. But Siberia, uh, just like Canada, is getting dramatically warmer. And uh, yeah, that is impacting things. And uh, But you know, these fires have been raging throughout uh, Canada, Western Canada and the US. Most of them have been started by electric, uh, by lightning strikes. Okay. And this happens every year. Uh, but if you've got a dry condition, the forests are going to burn a little more. And this has been a particularly dry year, uh, both in uh, Western Canada and the U.S. So this is not surprising. And again, the fact that uh, the natural burn rate has not been allowed to proceed uh, is a problem. And the fact that we've been harvesting our forests or protecting our forests. I think it's a big mistake uh, that we have basically outlaw lumbering in all of our national forests and national parks. Basically, the trees have gotten way too thick. The bark beetles come in. Uh, you know, if you go to Yellowstone, a third of the trees are dead because of the bark beetles. And so thinning out the trees would make a big difference. You think about the Amazon, I'm concerned. A fifth of the Amazon jungle 
has been removed, has been removed to make for pasture land. Huge mistake, because the soil in the Amazon is not rich enough uh, to support pasture land for more than about a decade. We're in danger of turning the Amazon into a desert. And so what I explain in the book is, we need to give the Amazonian peoples an economic incentive and basically say, if you'll go into the jungle and cut down the really big old trees before they're gonna die and decay, you're gonna make the most money because those are the most valuable trees. Replant those trees with younger trees. The younger trees will grow two to four times faster than the older trees, which is gonna pull a whole lot more greenhouse gases out of the atmosphere. It's gonna provide more habitat space uh, for the wildlife and uh, you're going to prevent the Amazon uh, from becoming a desert. Everybody wins. Mm -hmm. uh, so rather than sending in an army and uh, forcing those people to stop clear-cutting and burning down the jungle, we'd be far wiser to give them an economic incentive saying, here's a way you can make even more money and yet actually maintain uh, the health of the Amazon jungle, not just for your benefit, but for the benefit of all the peoples of the world. That's so interesting. Hugh, as Christ's followers, what is our, our mandate regarding caring for creation? And then uh, do, we, do we have any hope of, of having an impact or slowing down climate change? I think we do. And uh, the biblical mandate I would cite is in Genesis 1 and the book of Job, that God has given to human beings the responsibility to manage the resources of planet Earth for our benefit and the benefit of all their life. You know, what's driving this climate change debate is that we're being told we have to make a choice between our benefit and the benefit of all their life. The Bible implies in its creation text that we're not gonna be stuck between a rock and a hard place, that God in advance has provided us means by which we can economically benefit ourselves and benefit all the rest of the life on planet Earth. We just need to be diligent in finding those solutions. And that's one thing that I tried to do in the book is say, if we take an interdisciplinary approach, again, I think a reason for the debate, you've got scientists that are hyper-specialized and there's a real need to actually take an interdisciplinary approach. And when you do that, you will discover solutions that are maximally economically beneficial for human beings and also maximally beneficial for the rest of the life on planet Earth and a means by which we can sustain our high-tech global civilization uh, for many more centuries. In fact, I think we can do it probably for another 14 or 1500 years. Mm -hmm. Well, Hugh, you uh, are tackling obviously a, a very polarizing and emotional topic when it talks about, when we talk about climate change. I know there's a lot of people that say we need to take uh, drastic measures to correct uh, what humans have done to this earth and there are still other people that say this is uh this is feels like a hoax created by politicians or you know scientists who are looking to control society what are your thoughts on all that well i think that is a factor i mean there are people out there who see this as a tool whereby they can gain control over the lives of other human beings. And this is an opportunity uh, to pass laws where we can make people do what they don't wanna do. And uh, again, I'm arguing uh, that rather than passing these draconian laws 
let's give people an economic incentive. But yeah, there are people who say, we don't care what happens to the economy as long as we get to control uh, how people live and behave. That is a factor, uh, but I think the human species is onto these people, and uh, therefore, uh, simply coming up with saying, look, there's no need for these laws. Here's a way uh, that we can actually uh, stabilize the climate uh, without having to pass these laws. And so I think there's a real need to get the message out that, hey, we're not stuck between a rock and a hard place. You know, a lot of people told me my book is the anti-Al Gore book because uh, <laughs> he was first proposing. You know, we this is a crisis and we need to undertake these draconian economic uh, measures to bring climate change back into order. Uh, you and I both know there are politicians in Washington with an agenda this very day, and uh, they're going to try to make things happen in November. And I'm basically saying there's no need for that. Uh, and, you know, when you try to get people uh, to sacrifice their standard of living by a factor of two or three or four times, you're going to get pushback. And that's going to cause political chaos. And one of my motivations for writing the book Let's get the politics out of this issue. Oh, if we can get politics out, people are going to rationally respond. Uh, they're going to do uh, what is economically beneficial for themselves. And people do care for other human beings. Mm -hmm. Just we saying, look, this is going to benefit the poor a lot more than those of us here in America. Americans are going to like that as long as they get a piece of the pie, too. Mm -hmm. When we talk about uh, rising temperatures, let's also talk about f fresh uh, air and clean water. What percentage of the world's uh, fresh water do we get from melting ice and snow? And, and is this percentage important? It must be. Yeah, it is very important. Probably the most dramatic example of that would be the 20 biggest rivers uh, that are irrigating India and China and Southeast Asia. Every one of those rivers is fed by the melting ice in the glaciers covering the Himalayas and the Tibetan Plateau. And the ice that uh, covers the Tibetan Plateau, it's actually more than what you see uh, in the Arctic. I mean, the three largest stores of ice on the planet, number one, Antarctica, number two, Greenland, number three uh, is the Tibetan Plateau. Uh, but even here in North America, our great rivers are being fed uh, by the melting ice fields and glaciers that are left over from the last ice age, uh, predominantly in the Rockies. Mm -hmm. What encouragement, uh, Hugh, might you have for listeners today? Well, the encouragement is uh, don't panic. Mm. I mean, when people panic, they wind up doing things with unintended consequences. And uh, you know, that's my concern, for example, with the rush to go towards uh, wind power generation. It sounds like a good option, but you won't believe how much carbon you've got to burn to maintain those wind electric generating systems or how many birds they kill. Uh, so uh, we need to be you know, in a circumspect mood saying panic always leads us into making the wrong decisions. We need to look at the possible consequences and let's put into action uh, those steps that are going to have the maximum benefit on improving the economic well-being of human beings and stabilizing the climate. Now, what I tried to put in my book are some of the things 
that we can put into effect relatively quickly within the next few years that have a fairly immediate economic payoff, again, that's how you motivate people. Mm -hmm. Here's something that's going to benefit you quickly and it's going to have the maximum benefit in stabilizing the climate. Mm -hmm. Hugh, thank you so much for sharing this with us. I, this book it probably is not, not an easy read, but it's, a, it's an incredibly interesting read. Is that fair to say? Yeah, that's fair to say. I mean, I wrote the book uh, to not only uh, educate lay people, uh, but to persuade uh, those PhD scientists that are deeply involved uh, in the climate change uh, debate. Mm -hmm. And so uh, I tell lay people, look, if you're willing to take my word for it, you don't have to chase all the links to the research papers I put in the back of the book. Uh, but if you're a scientist and you want to actually check it all out, all I there. give you links that are right to the paper. You can read it for yourself. But I would say to lay people, you know, you might want to look at those links because the abstracts of every scientific research paper are free to the public. That's fantastic. Thank you so much, uh, Hugh, for doing the show. It's just been a delight. Oh, you're my pleasure. Thank you so much. Dr. Hugh Ross has been my guest. His book is Weathering Climate Change, A Fresh Approach. That wraps up our show for the day. Thank you so much for uh, spending it with me. I hope you have a wonderful evening. I will see you tomorrow. Good night. And God bless. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.